Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, please speak to us through your word this morning and let our response be, here I am. Lord Jesus, call us again to discipleship to you. And Spirit, give us the faith to follow Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. There is never a bad time to hear Jesus call you to be his disciple. God is no respecter of persons, says St. Peter, and I would add, nor is he a respecter of personal calendars. He calls disciples in the middle of the workday. Peter and Andrew have their hands wrapped in the tools of their trade, their nets, when he calls them. Matthew is sitting in his ergonomic chair at his tax booth. He calls disciples in their leisure time. He calls Nathaniel from whatever rest or revelation he was having under the fig tree. Jesus calls us when we're quite content. He calls Abram when Abram is comfortably settled in Canaan. The Lord says, nice setup you have here, Abram. Would be a shame if somebody asked you to depart from it and go to the land that I will show you. Yet that's exactly what he does. I won't tell you where you're going, but I promise you it will be good. Jesus calls us when we're at our lowest point. Think of the persecutor Saul, blinded on his way to lock up more Christians, and then sick and starving in the dark of a Damascus motel room. And that's when Jesus sends Ananias to call him, to tell brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus even calls us when we've already been called, when we're already following him as best we can. He calls us even when, like Peter, we've confessed to him that he is the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. As it turns out, there's not just a single call to discipleship. Jesus calls us deeper and deeper into discipleship to him through the course of our entire lives. If you've never heard the call of Jesus, or if you've heard it and obeyed it for decades, he can and will call you again, anytime, anywhere, through anyone, even in a clean, well-lit sanctuary on the second Sunday of Lent. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the time when Jesus called Nathaniel to be his disciple. You'll, You'll remember, come and look and see he called to Andrew, and then Andrew repeated that invitation to Nathaniel. We found the Messiah, Nathaniel, come, see. When we do come and look and see, when we begin to pay closer attention to this Jesus, when we begin to follow him, we are inevitably in for a shock. Now, of course, we're going to gape and marvel at this Jesus's power over human illness, demon possession, his power over the winds and the waves of the natural world. We're going to nod, we're going to shake our heads with wonder at the unique authority of his teaching. We may conclude, like Peter does today, that this man is like no other man. This Jesus must be the Savior of the world, God's chosen Messiah. But the thing that may stop us in our following tracks is a revelation which Jesus does not hide from us. It's that this mighty Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve. And more than that, to give his life as a ransom for many. In our gospel reading from Mark, we pick up just after Peter has declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And now the time is right, Jesus decides, to tell them precisely what following the Messiah will mean. Jesus says that the means by which the Messiah will bring salvation to the world is this. The Messiah will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Following this Messiah, it's going to mean life and healing and truth. Of course, Jesus has shown that, but it will also certainly include suffering and rejection and death before it includes resurrection. Jesus may not always lead with these hard facts of discipleship, but he never hides them. Mark clarifies, he says all this stuff about suffering and rejection of death plainly, is what Mark says. For some time now, crowds have been gathering around Jesus to hear him teach, to offer him their sick and their dying and their dead for healing. And Jesus, in love for them, has been teaching and healing. But Jesus knows that it's time now to make very clear that he's not just a traveling sideshow. He's not a self-help guru come to set you on your own path to enlightenment. Jesus' goal is not to give you a perfectly pleasant and easygoing life. Because he himself has come to die for the sins of the world, to give his life as a ransom for us. And his intention for the crowds, for his disciples, for everyone who would come after him, is to lead them into death and through death into resurrection life. So he calls the crowds over because this demanding call to discipleship isn't just for the twelve. It's not just for the super apostles. It's for everyone who would come after Jesus. And so this too is his call to discipleship. Not just come and see, but also this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's look at these three invitations in turn. And in so doing, hear Jesus call you to discipleship again here on the second Sunday of Lent. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, Jesus begins. And this is how Jesus' call always begins. Deny yourself. Set down your nets. Leave your tax booth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from the self-sufficient self that you thought you had and turn towards me. This is how the call of God first comes to Abram. You'll remember that before he was made Abraham, he was just Abram, a wealthy nomad dwelling comfortably in Canaan. He had his father's support. He had his kinship networks. He had his culture's respectable gods. He had his young and beautiful wife, probably the closest thing to middle-class comfort that the ancient Near East had to offer. And that's when the first call of Yahweh comes to him in Genesis 12. Now Yahweh said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. Deny yourself, Abram, and follow me. Leave your family and your land. Leave your roots. Leave your father's house. Your past cannot save you. Your present comfort cannot save you, so leave them. This is how Jesus' call to discipleship always begins. Deny yourself. 
Why, though? Why does he demand self-denial? It's because ourselves are sinful. We are sinners, every one of us in this room. Those selves that we love so much are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, with evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. We're insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to our parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice these evil things deserve to die, we not only continue to do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the sinful self which must be denied if you want to live. Like Abram you must leave the paltry comforts and privileges and pleasures of your former life. If Abram stays, he may have a comfortable life, but he'll die an idolater, never knowing the glory and love of the only true God. You must abandon the idols that you thought might bring you happiness or spark your joy, because they won't. They will chew you up real slow, and in the end, they will spit you out and leave you with nothing. We're not going to find the answers to our deepest needs in the fulfillment of our every desire, as reasonable as that sounds to us most of the time. Our desires are evil. We want that which we should not have. And even when they're not evil, our desires are mixed up, contradictory. We choose constantly to pursue the next big thing, the next best thing, oblivious to the fact that if we do this for our whole lifetime, our lives are going to conclude with us not fulfilled, but scattered and diminished and utterly unfulfilled. This is why being a demon has to be like the easiest job in the universe. All you have to do is just bring up the next distraction. And the, and the wicked, the, the twisted human heart is going to follow. Jesus' call to discipleship, to deny yourself, is the opposite of our default modern gospel. You know the one, the one which tells you that your desires are the deepest truth about yourself. That life is a journey of self-discovery and self-expression. And that means you need to remove or refuse every obstacle and every person who might tell you, might dare to tell you that your desire is disordered or that your dreams are misguided or that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus is clear, that is no gospel at all. That's a message of death, not of life. Whoever would save his life will lose it. If you would follow me, deny yourself. Well, let's say that's well and good, but don't most religions ask you to deny yourself? Buddhism, in particular, prescribes self-denial as kind of the very essence of enlightenment. And I could find you two dozen TikTok gurus preaching the half-gospel of self-discipline in two minutes, or at least the algorithm could. Is the gospel just a message of self-discipline? No, it's not. When Jesus calls you to discipleship, he's not calling you to a program of self-improvement. He's trying to save your dying life. And so this is when Jesus takes his call one massive step further. Deny yourself and take up your cross. It's hard to overstate how shocking and offensive that statement would have come across. You want to follow me? Here's the warrant for your execution. Do you want to follow me? Here's your blindfold. Go stand against that wall. 
Following Jesus doesn't mean occasional self-denial. It doesn't mean intermittent fasting. Following Jesus means death. And let's not immediately take the sting out of that like we so often want to do. Because for millions of Christians throughout history and in the world today, allegiance to Jesus means making yourself a traitor and an enemy to the state. Allegiance to Jesus means literal martyrdom. It would for most of the disciples Jesus was speaking to. It obviously would for Jesus himself. But even that literal cross-bearing speaks to a universal call that Jesus is making, both to non-martyrs and martyrs alike. Following me means suffering and death. It will mean handing your entire self over to me and trusting me for salvation in and through the hardest moments of your life, the longest suffering seasons, the pruning away of the things that you thought you couldn't live without. Let's return to Abraham for a moment. By Genesis 22, Abraham has heard and obeyed Yahweh's call to discipleship. He's lived by faith in Yahweh. He's denied himself. He's taken his family out into the world. And after many trials, finally Abraham and Sarah are blessed with the child of God's promise, with Isaac. They've seen this miracle grow up before them, carrying the blessings that have been promised to Abraham. And then, that's when Abraham hears a familiar call. Go to the land of Moriah, to the mountain I will show you. Does that sound familiar? Do you hear the echo of the first call? Go from where you are to the place that I will show you. Only this time, it's not Abraham's past that he's asked to give up. It's his future. God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Is Yahweh finally pulling the rug out from under Abraham? Has all of Yahweh's patient provision for Abraham been leading to this terrible moment when Yahweh reveals himself to be no better than the pagan gods like Molech who demand child sacrifice? No. In verse 1 of Genesis 22, we read this. After these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. We don't like to talk about it very often, but God tests his people. Now, when God tests his people, it's not because he is a scheming, scowling schoolmaster who is eager to scrawl a bright red F on your forehead. Nor is God's testing the kind of thing that we pray against in the Lord's Prayer and lead us not into temptation. St. James says it clearly, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God's testing of his people is not temptation. It's not setting you up for failure. We heard last week from this pulpit that God's acceptance and pleasure and blessing upon his children, they come before they encounter temptation in the wilderness. It comes before there's any testing. God's love comes fully upon us before we have proven ourselves in any way worthy of that love. God's love for you is unconditional. He loves you as you are. It's not, his love is not a wage you receive once the contractual terms have been sufficiently fulfilled. God loves you entirely as you are, and because he does that, his love is not content to let you stay as you are. 
Just as a parent does not love their child by letting them live in the, the, whatever they desire and, and the, the slavery of their desire, the slavery of disobedience, but wants to see them drawn out, so our loving Father sees us in love. He sees us sin-riddled, vice-burdened wretches scrumming about in the mud puddles of our wretchedness, and he wants to get us out of there. Remember that God's great intention, it's not just to get us to easy street. It's not to make life one long vacation. God intends for us, God intends for you a flourishing that is both higher and deeper. The flourishing of holiness. And and he tests his people because he loves them. The metaphor that scripture uses for God's testing is the refining of metal. If you want a pure, unmixed metal, you have to heat it up until its shape is lost And it's this molten mass, at which point the impurities in that metal, the dross, can either burn up or be scraped away. And God intends to scrape away from you every clinging sin, every hint of idolatry, every tincture of vice, every whiff of death. He wants to scrape it away until you are left more truly yourself than ever. Because your sin is not most truly you. God wants to bring you out of sin. He intends to make you you, the you that is liberated from sin and characterized by faith and hope and love. So whenever God tests his people, he's burning away the dross of our souls and he's displaying his all-sufficiency for our every need. And that burning hurts. Testing hurts. It even hurts like death. Back to Abraham. Here at last is the child God has promised him. Here at last is the reward for all the pain of leaving my home. Here's the reward for all the threats and the suffering of nomadic life and hostile lands, all the turmoil we've suffered in our own household. Yahweh asked me to give up everything. He promised me everything in return. And here it finally is in this son of the promise, Isaac. Here at last is my salvation. Finally, circumstances are under my control. And then God says... I'm taking him too. Abraham is caught in a bind which exceeds human understanding. Remember, God has attached his promise to Isaac specifically. And now he's commanding Abraham to give Isaac up. What is Abraham to do? Doubt God's promises? He's never failed in his promises before. Is he supposed to suddenly start doubting them? Or is he supposed to disobey this command from God? This is a conundrum for which there is no human solution. You're not going to wrap your mind around it and see the solution to this problem. We can imagine the terror and the torment of Abraham as he feels torn between these things. His trust in Yahweh and also his love for this son that has been promised and given by Yahweh. The test is, will you trust me, Abraham? This test of Abraham's faith Notice, this this is not the sort of thing that God would have started with. This is in Genesis 22, not 12. God would not have tested Abram in this way. He's testing Abraham. Because time and again, God has invited Abraham's trust. And time and again, he has proved himself faithful. And so Abraham has been refined and refined and refined by God to this point. Such that when God tells Abraham, take up your cross... Offer into my care the beloved son who carries all of your blessedness. Abraham is ready to respond in faith. We can't miss what Hebrews 11 tells us about Abraham in this moment. By faith, 
Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He obeys God's command. Why? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. When faced with the death of that one dearer to him than his own life, Abraham does what the only option he has. He casts himself on the power of the true God. There is no human solution to this conundrum. There is only a divine solution, resurrection. Abraham surrenders his heart. He surrenders his life. And as soon as he does that, his life is given back to him. He raises the knife blade in faith, but the knife blade is stayed. And God provides the sacrifice. And Abraham receives Isaac from God anew. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying that some version of this very test is coming your way. Being Jesus' disciple means giving up trust in everything else you thought could bring you salvation. If you would cling to anything besides Jesus, if you would save your life, as Jesus puts it, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, if you hand over every piece of it to the Lord, you will save it. Because in God's good timing and in God's great and unique power, you will receive that life back, even from the dead. Here's an image that may bring all this into focus. I may be about to speak heresy here, at least to some of you in the room, but the first time that I went backpacking in the Smoky Mountains, I was underwhelmed. Pretty disappointed, sorry to say it. It's not just that I'm a Colorado man and the scale left something to be desired, it was that the lower altitudes meant that there was no tree line above which the views could clear. And so backpacking in the Smokies was just three long days of the same view over and over, just dense forest undergrowth. And any outlook where you hoped you might finally catch a glorious view was just entirely obscured by a dense canopy of leaves. It wasn't until a couple weeks ago, on a hike at Chaco Springs, of all places, that I had a realization. I was hiking with a group and we crested just a modest hill. I was breathing a bit harder than I would care to admit, but it was a modest hill. And suddenly, at the top of this modest hill in humble Talladega, Alabama, there opened up just this magnificent view of an endless rolling countryside. I could see for 50 miles is what it felt like. It was stunning. And I realized just as suddenly that the reason I could see this stunning view was because it was February. It was the dead center of winter, when every leaf had been shaken from every tree, when all the vegetation had died and shriveled and was now moldering on the ground. It was obvious in retrospect. I remember, too, the experience I've had in my own neighborhood that's pretty woodsy. These past few winters, whereas life is stripped from the lush Alabama vegetation, I can begin to see households and outbuildings that I never knew were there. I have neighbors that I never knew were there, and I see it in winter. Just a few days ago, this is true, I realized there is a giant white house, like a giant white house, 200 yards from my house, that I had not seen in four years of living there. This is why I bring it up. It's when aspects of our life shrivel in death. It's when the dense attachments are cut away or fall lifelessly to the ground, 
It's only then that we're granted new visions of a life that we thought we knew every inch of. It's when the most treasured pieces of our lives, maybe it's your health, maybe economic stability, maybe loved ones, it's only when they're taken from us that we can begin to see ways in which God has always been present, as close to us as our own hearts and as magnificent and mighty as a mountaintop. And I know I'm speaking kind of vaguely here. It's because I dare not speak more specifically. I have not borne your unique suffering, and you haven't borne mine. There is an intimacy to our suffering that only God can know. It's your cross, after all, that Jesus tells you to take up. And I'm not trying to say that any specific trial or burden or disease or disability or loss that you've experienced or are currently undergoing is just a test sent from God. But I also can't say definitively that it isn't. I can say confidently two things. I can say confidently that God does no evil. His every action towards you is for your good and for your eventual glory. His every act towards you is in love. And I am also confident to say that it is God alone who can take the evils of this world, both natural and man-made, and turn them to any kind of good purpose. It is God alone who can take the raw material of death and turn it into life. Which brings us to the final part of Jesus' call to discipleship. Now, if I tell you to deny yourself and take up your cross, that may be good advice, but it's definitely not good news. If your Navy SEAL commander tells you to deny yourself and take up your cross, that may be your duty, but it's not good news. If somebody evil or manipulative tells you to deny yourself and take up your cross, that's abuse. That's not good news at all. The only scenario in which deny yourself, take up your cross, is good news, is a gospel that you can stake your life on, is when, is when it's followed by that third command, follow me, and when that me is Jesus. Because here is the essential thing that we need to hear this morning. Everything that God demands, God provides. Everything that God demands from you will call forth in your discipleship. Every single thing that God demands, God himself provides. He's making the steepest demand on you this morning that he could possibly make. Deny yourself and die for my sake. But he only makes it because he alone can and will provide the very thing that he's demanding. When you deny your sinful self, he will give you your true self back. When you take up your cross, he will bear that cross with you. If he demands your life from you, it's because he has already given his life for you. And now we Christians can't help but see the story of the binding of Isaac in a new and transfigured light. Tell me if this story sounds familiar. A father accompanies his beloved and only son on a slow journey to a mountain, while the son is bearing the wood for a sacrifice on his back. As they journey, the son wrestles with the intentions of the father and prays to that father, which sacrifice do you want, father? And the father remains emotionally present through it all. Here I am, my son. And then that son is finally bound for the sacrifice and laid upon the wood that he was carrying. 
The story of Abraham and Isaac is a shadow of our Lord's crucifixion. Jesus' one perfect offering of himself on the mountain of Calvary. But when Jesus offers himself on behalf of the world, there's no angelic messenger to stop the knife. The nails do pierce his hands and his feet. The spear does enter the son's side. The son does die. And herein is our salvation. Isaac is spared on Mount Moriah because Jesus has taken his place. You'll remember that on Moriah, a ram is offered, a ram whose head has been caught in a crown of thorns. So it is, and so it will be with the cross that Jesus calls you to take up. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. He's the one who brings blessing by taking our own death and dying it for us. And it's this Jesus, the one who is the, the substitution for Isaac, the sacrifice for all of us, it's this Jesus who tells you this morning, follow me. He knows his beloved people are headed straight for death, and so he rushes ahead of us, shouting behind him, follow me. I'll lead you through this. Every suffering that you bear, every death you are to die, I'll bear it first. Nothing will be able to separate you from my love. Not angels, not rulers, things present, things to come, they can't do it. Not powers, not height, not depth, certainly not death. Follow me through even death, and I will lead you through it into resurrection. Being a disciple of this Jesus will cost you everything. Discipleship to Jesus comes with the steepest demand you can imagine. God will test you. He will make demands of you so searching and profound that you may well feel like he is your enemy, like he's against you. But it's precisely in those moments that he intends to show you how gloriously for you he is. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Because whatever God demands, God provides. That's the discipleship to which Jesus is calling you again this morning on the second Sunday of Lent. If Jesus demands that you deny yourself, it's only because he's making you into your true self, liberated from sin. If Jesus demands your life, it's only because he's already given his life for you. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If Jesus calls you to die, it can only mean eternal life. Follow him. Amen.